Hello and welcome to this episode of the CEU Press podcast series. I'm your host, Andrea Talaber. My guest for this episode is Gábor Klanitai, Professor of Medieval Studies at the CEU's Department of Medieval Studies. Gábor has published extensively on the historical anthropology of Christendom, on comparative religious history of Hungary and Central Europe, and on the uses of the Middle Ages in modern history. Gábor is also the series editor of the Central European Medieval Texts, CEU Press's series of critical editions in Latin and English translation, along with Patrick Geary, Gerhard Jarit, and Pavlina Richterova. His forthcoming edition, co-edited with Ediko Cepregi, is The Sanctity of the Leaders, containing the lives of saints canonized in the 11th to 13th centuries in the newly Christianized countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Gábor. And uh, before we turn to these critical editions, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your academic background? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, uh, as you uh, have heard already, I'm uh, dealing with the history of medieval Christianity, and I've been doing that for several decades. Uh, at first, I was teaching at the Ötvös Lorant University of Budapest, and when uh, CU was founded in the 1990s, Uh, I managed to convince uh, the university that uh, a new university needs uh, a foundation in the classical subjects, classical disciplines, which founded universities also in medieval times. Uh, So uh, uh, there was a a creation of the Department of Medieval Studies, which is a different thing uh, from history in the sense that uh, it is an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary research and uh, training uh, students in being able to use the methodologies of several disciplines. That is, besides history and historical source criticism, uh, also art history, archaeology, paleography, historical anthropology, literature. All these things uh, are very important also because CU does not have all the disciplines So, uh, in a way, the Department of Medieval Studies was providing a combination of these disciplines and also putting CEU on the map of international cooperation in these fields. Now, the department has uh, lived, it's celebrating now the 30th anniversary. We have, in the 30 years of our existence, uh, provided MA dissertations for about 650 students and about 150 PhD dissertations. The fascinating uh, experience in this department was to have here uh, first, above all, uh, a selection of students from former socialist countries, East European countries, and that was also allowing us to have a combination of the hidden expertise of these countries because Middle Ages was, although studied in uh, the previous decades, But the results of the scholarship in these various countries were preserved also because of linguistic difficulties. Nobody uh, could uh, read uh, for uh, decades uh, what was written in Polish or in Czech or in Hungarian or in Romanian or in Bulgarian. Now, with our English language education and also with our international contacts, we could serve as a kind of mediation I must mention that the department was founded uh, in cooperation uh, with Janos Bak, who served uh, several decades as professor in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia. There was the archaeologist uh, Józef Laslowski, 
There was also uh, the Austrian expert of culture of daily life, Gerhard Jaritz. And uh, we had also an art historian, Bilajot Sokac, uh, or historian of religion, Marian Shag, or a historian of patristics, Istvan Perzel. And I cannot enumerate now all the participants which, because the department grew bigger. But the, the experience was that this combination of disciplines uh, was attractive also for, for the students coming from all around, from America, from uh, France, from Germany, from Italy, but also from the global world. So now in the third decade already we had a very strong presence, for example, in the history of the Near East with Ottoman uh, studies or the Eastern Mediterranean studies and so on. But I will not uh, enumerate now everything I wanted to get to this uh, presentation rather uh, of the book series. Next to the university's commitment to medieval studies, obviously the press also has a big commitment to it. And um, the series that we are talking about is the Central European Medieval Text Series. And I mean, the CEU Press has been publishing in that series since the late 1990s. Could you describe what the series is about, what is its purpose and what prompted its creation? There are such series in international publication world. Uh, the model for us was the Oxford medieval texts. These bilingual editions are useful because the knowledge of Latin is declining, unfortunately. We, we try to counteract and our students do learn Latin and we do have a, a thorough education because the students of medieval times must have their source languages, Latin or Greek for Byzantine studies or Syriac for Near Eastern Christianity and others. But to have a publication uh, republish these sources with a, an appropriate English translation, that's now all around purpose of uh, scholarly editors and publishers. And we propose CU Press to have a series which uh, would uh, correspond to these Western publications because the sources, the most important narrative sources, we wanted to concentrate on these narrative sources in Latin language in Central European countries, were published in editions which were critical, well done, but they were inaccessible for the larger world. They were either like the Monumenta Polonia Historica published around the turn of the 19th and 20th century or the Hungarian series of uh, the Scriptures Rerum Hungaricarum was uh, also from the 1940s. And even though uh, some of them had been reprinted, these were not very well accessible and they were, of course, only in Latin. Also, we thought that we have a good... Uh, uh, background, academic background to do this because it's not only bilingual edition but it is uh, provided with explanatory contextual historical footnotes uh, with an introduction uh, from uh, one of the leading uh, experts of the field and for this we had to mobilize our international network. In the first place uh, what I must say is that you mentioned uh, uh, the present uh, editorial board of the series at the beginning, it was, uh, Jan, it was the initiative of Janos Bach, my colleague. Uh, he had a practice in this type of source edition already earlier. And uh, the board consisted of Giles Constable, who was uh, uh, the director of the School of History at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. 
There was Ursula Borkowska, an excellent professor of medieval religious history from the Catholic University of Lublin. There was Ferdinand Zeibt, a great expert of Czech history on the one hand, and also somebody representing German scholarship from Munich, and myself. So that was the first editorial board. And the purpose was to publish the principal narrative sources, above all chronicles and uh, hagiographic uh, sources, legends, and uh, uh, some other narrative accounts from the medieval period. Medieval be meaning here because this region was converted to Christianity around the first millennium, so from the 10th to the 14th century. So I wanted to pick up on this issue of... Um Latin knowledge or you know, the lack of Latin knowledge these days because um, obviously the series is not only important for scholars of medieval history but also for scholars of modern and contemporary history as the Middle Ages are often used in modern historiography to bolster claims of historical legitimacy of the nation with many Central and Eastern European states dating their origins to this period. So I was wondering whether... Who is the intended audience for these texts? Are they um, accessible also for the non-specialist or for the modern contemporary historian? Of course, it's also for the modern historians. If we go into the see the uh, topics of the volume, of course, well, these medieval sources are being read uh, also by all history students, and not only history students, but also art historians or archaeologists or others, they are important for research, but they are also important for the larger public. And if we get to the individual pieces, I can give some examples how it is also important in modern public history or public debates on history. But what I want to say is that the intended audience is threefold. One is that the essential precondition of university studies and also research is that research libraries throughout the world, and that several hundred uh, such uh, research libraries or university libraries, must have uh, uh, these source editions. Uh, these are the building stones of the work of uh, historical and art historical and literary historical research. And they have to be provided in a, in a appropriate and uh, also uh, scholarly valid uh, manner, so not just, because there are a lot of translations which lack uh, these scholarly standards. So we, what we wanted is really to have these parallel texts. And then, of course, uh, of course, uh, this is very, very good also for those who, who uh, know some Latin, but not insufficient, so they can, by seeing the parallel texts, uh, refresh their knowledge or uh, even uh, develop their knowledge uh, by using these bilingual editions. Yeah, it's, it's quite good for uh, practicing languages, I think. Could you just say a few words about you know, what has been published so far and um, how were these texts chosen? We concentrate on Central Europe. That's in the title of the series. So Central Europe is roughly the area in the Middle Ages between the Adriatic and the Baltic. So it is the three big Central European kingdoms, Hungary, Czech Kingdom and, and Poland. 
but also Croatia belongs there because Croatia was in personal union with Hungary uh, since Coloman, uh, the learned from the 12th century, but they produced their autonomous literary work. So we uh, limited our attention only to Latin uh, Christianity because it was with uh, Latin uh, sources that we have been working. We could have enlarged it to more to Eastern Europe, but first we wanted to get ready with this. Now, how, how it is chosen? Each country has three or four such important work. Unfortunately, medieval production of, of chronicles was not so, so abundant. And, and we theoretically, we want to do it all. And then we need to find the appropriate translator, commentator, and also funding, because this is not uh, something which, which can be just uh, done uh, as a hobby. And we do, uh, do have some candidates for that, and we did also mobilize several times uh, project uh, money, and that's how it was uh, done. Now, you asked about individual volumes, and I think it would be worthwhile to see some of the examples. So far, nine volumes have been published, and the tenth uh, is about to be published uh, in April. So the first volume, published in 1999, was uh, the chronicle of Simon of Keza, a Hungarian chronicle writer from the 13th century, around the 1270s, titled Gesta Hungarorum, The Deeds of the Hungarians. And this chronicle was very famous in the Middle Ages because it was the first to describe a story of the origins of the Hungarians. Medieval nations had all uh, an origin uh, stories, and this origin story of the Hungarians, written down by Simon of Keza, in the 13th century, so one must retain that Hungarians came to the Carpathian Basin in the late 9th uh, century, and so four centuries later. This ancient history, according to Simon of Keza, was that the Hungarians were descending from the Huns, and the Hungarians came to the Carpathian Basin uh, to take back what was already theirs in the time of Attila, the Hun, uh, who had famous uh, world uh, empire and uh, almost uh, defeated the Roman Empire. And uh, this was very much a central uh, building stone of the Hungarian national consciousness. And uh, after Shimon of Keza, a lot of other histories uh, in more detail, uh, kind of in, with a literary fantasy, uh, describe this, these origin stories, uh, the myth. And this is then, this became in the modern uh, history of the national consciousness of Hungary, very big debate, because in the 18th century, linguists pointed out that the Hungarian language is not of Turkic origin, but of Finno-Ugrian origin. And this caused a very big uproar among the Hungarians who wanted to, to uh, have that type of consciousness of being terrible horse riding, arrow shooting, uh, nomads, or originating from Attila and uh, having been mighty conquerors of the world. And they thought that uh, this linguist's, uh, linguist theory was just the Habsburgs conspiracy to destroy Hungarian national pride. And this debate, believe it or not, is lasting since the 18th century to our days and considerable proportion of Hungarians want to, uh, still to prove that the Han-Hungarian kinship 
is the right explanation of the origin of the Hungarians, and uh, they uh, have to debate. And this is, uh, now I won't go in detail uh, of this history, but the, the volume itself contains a study by the historian Janusic, who in the 1970s analyzed that this uh, Han-Hungarian mythology was like the Fra- French, for example, the Franks were saying that they are descending from uh, uh, some uh, soldiers emigrating from Troy. So there was a Trojan uh, origin of the French, and also this was taken over by the English uh, as well. There are uh, many, uh, many such myths from the Middle Ages, which uh, modern people do, do not consider now the right historical explanation. This is not the case with the Han-Hungarian uh, kinship. Anyhow... To publish the texts there, that was very important. And already the publication of this this volume uh, contains uh, the model uh, that there is a appropriate detailed historical study uh, tied uh, to the uh, volume. Now, uh, other volumes include, for example, the second volume was the autogra- autobiography of the Holy Roman Emperor and Czech King uh, Charles IV. Which, which is another genre. It's not a chronicle, it's an autobiography, but a very interesting one uh, in that sense that one of the first autobiography by a ruler, in a, a ruler who describes his youth, his dreams, his visions, he even had visions, his project as a ruler, and also his veneration of the national symbols, national patrons. He also uh, even ra- wrote a legend on St. Wenceslas, the founder of medieval Bohemia. And this one was uh, preceded by a preface by Ferdinand Zeibt, who was the greatest expert uh, of uh, 14th century uh, uh, Prague. The third volume, uh, The uh, Deeds of the Princes of the Poles, which was uh, preceded by a preface by Thomas Bisson, and uh, the translation and the comment was by Paul Knoll, an American scholar, uh, excellent expert of Polish history. I must say that uh, in the translations, that is uh, actually a very important academically uh, important work also, uh, and we had a series, we have a series editor, Frank Scher, uh, Australian Latinist who controlled all the texts and uh, some of the translations were directly made by him. And the fourth volume, just to make the real ge- uh, geographical balance, was Historia Salonitana, the uh, history of the bishops of Split. And that was already uh, commented by a former PhD of ours uh, and This is something which I want to point out, that the series relies on two networks. One is the network uh, of the colleagues who participated in building up the international network of our department, or our PhDs, because our PhDs grew up with this, with working with these texts. And Damir Karbic, who is an important uh, medievalist in Croatia, was, uh, for example, investing work into uh, this Historia Salonitana. The fifth volume in the in the series was uh, is again Hungary, Hungary uh, which is a chronicle called the Chronicle of the Anonymous. Now this is again uh, uh, Hungarian uh, historians know that the biggest riddle of Hungarian history because we only know about this master called P Dictus Magister Master said P. So we, we have the initial of his name, that he was a notary of a certain King Bela. 
Now, there were four Belas in Hungarian uh, Middle Ages, and uh, which Bela, that was a long, long debate. Now, more or less, uh, there is a consensus that it must have been Bela III, who is 12th century and in the age of the Crusades. And uh, indeed, this Chronicle of Anonymous is describing the land-taking Hungarians. And uh, it is uh, somebody who is educated already with the courtly romances, the history of Troy, And it is actually the most important work on Hungarian uh, Middle Ages and medieval history. And this is coupled in the volume by another piece because because, uh, the the Chronicle of Anonymous is not uh, very long, so there was space in the volume. And that is a Master Roger in the 13th century who described the terrible destruction of Hungary by the Mongolian attack. In 1241, uh, the Mongols uh, devastated Hungary, and there was a cleric who was uh, giving a a moving and really detailed account of uh, what he saw and what he... It's it's called Carmen Miserabile, the the weeping song or something like that. And this is also a reading for anybody to, to know a little bit about medieval reality. Now the sixth volume is uh, on a medieval cult of saints and it is uh, the saints of the Christianization age. Actually there is a three volume series on medieval hagiography where I myself was uh, responsible. This volume six was uh, the first published the most important saints uh, of the period. So Saint Adalbert uh, who was the Bishop of Prague but then chased from Prague and went to Rome and then finished his life by trying to convert in Poland the uh, the pagan Prussians uh, who uh, killed him. He was a martyr. And then later on he became the most important saint of Central European countries. Uh, The Czechs and also the Hungarians venerate him as one of the most important patrons. And he he had a great influence in uh, founding Christianity in these countries. Then uh, uh, we have in this volume also one of the legends of St. Wenceslas, uh, the Bohemian Duke, also a martyr, also killed, uh, but uh, was a model of a a Christian ruler. We have uh, a description of some hermits who went to convert like the five martyr brethren killed in Poland or Zorad, Andrew and Benedict in Hungary or Croatian uh, hermit called Gaudentius uh, of Ozor. And the introduction to this volume was written by Ian Wood, the English historian who is maybe one of the greatest experts of the missionary lives and uh, the missionary period of European history. And is translated by two of our alumni, Christian Gaspar and Marina Miladinov. The seventh volume is the one which is now currently being prepared and uh, currently it's, it's already uh, in print and it will come out in April and is publishing the saints of 11th and 12th and 13th century, so the most important saints, St. Stephen, St. Ladislas, St. Stanislaus of Poland, the martyr bishop, St. Procopius of Sazava, and uh, this is real big teamwork. I won't enumerate now everybody in participating in it, but I'm, I must name Petr Zommer, who is longtime leader of the uh, Czech Institute for Medieval History and who is a great historian of uh, all the 
monastic uh, history of 11th and 12th century. There is a ninth volume, which is, I think, uh, worthwhile to mention. Uh, this publication was directed by Janusz Bok, deceased uh, a few years ago, but this was one of his last work and uh, maybe the most cherished work. 14th century uh, chronicle composition uh, was the most important Hunga medieval Hungarian chronicle, and uh, uh, this was uh, also called the Illuminated Chronicle. And this is a volume which contains also a CD with all the pictures. This, uh, uh, the 14th century was uh, the century when the chronicles were already il illustrated by beautiful and very artfully exec uh, executed miniatures. There was also a, a legendary, an Angevin legendary, by the way, that is also published by CU Press, uh, by Béla Zsoltzakács, one of our colleagues. Uh, in, uh, we have another series called CU Medievalia, and uh, that's also part of that. But the Illuminated Chronicle was also like a French and Italian miniature painters uh, was uh, bringing the, these pictures. But that was not the only uh, thing which was interesting, but this was a kind of chronicle composition of uh, a chronicle which was started already in the 11th century and was enlarged and enlarged and rewritten several times. And again, this is a great riddle for historians to know which part belongs where, belong where. And it is, uh, it is also edited by, by an excellent uh, Hungarian scholar, Laszlo Vesprémi, who is maybe the best expert now of uh, medieval Hungarian chronicles. And Martin Rady, who participated in several of these editions and translations, who is also uh, an English expert of Hungarian medieval history. Volume 10 is, again, a Czech volume, which is the Chronicle of Cosmas, Cosmas of Prague. That's the most important Czech medieval chronicle, also from the 12th century. And this is edited by Janos Bok and Pavlina Richterová, it was translated by a former PhD of ours, Petra Mutlova, and also a team of Czech historians were working on making this uh, volume a very thick volume as a basic source for medieval Czech history. Thank you for, for these descriptions. And uh, I mean, the way you describe it, uh, this is very much a teamwork effort. I was interested in the, in the nitty gritty of, you know, how these texts are put together as critical source editions. You, know, you mentioned the various translators. That in itself is quite a big challenge. So could you say a bit about, you know, how you find these sources? Just in general, what is the challenge in, in publishing these? Well, as I already referred to it, the translators are mostly uh, mostly now uh, coming from those circles which we have trained ourselves. So, for example, in the volume which is currently being published, there are six or seven former PhDs participating. Uh, so, for example, the, there is a Croatian bishop, John of Trogir, who, who was a 12th century reformed bishop and uh, one of the important medieval saints. And... Uh, Marina Miladinov-Schumann translated, and uh, Anna Marinkovic, another PhD of our department, uh, wrote a very expert commentary. Or the legend of St. Stanislaus, the martyr bishop of Krakow, uh, was translated by Christian Gaspar, and uh, uh, Stanislava Kuzmova, who wrote a PhD dissertation on, uh, on 
Saint Stanislaus and the sermons related to Saint Stanislaus is uh, was writing a preface, and I won't go around all all of these. Uh, the uh, essential thing is that each individual source requires a person who has uh, done research on that, who is able to put together a commentary and also able to control the various historical notions which are which are mentioned in the sources so sometimes uh, the translator has to be clear what are the titles what are the appropriate description of the ecclesiastical or uh, secular uh, offices which are mentioned in the text and of course it has to be in a acceptable or even better, in a good, readable English. And uh, this is why we, we always have, uh, beside the, uh, the translator, who is above all a person who knows Latin and uh, who, who can work with us and uh, who is not working, <laughs> I have to add, uh, for the price a translator works in the uh, Western world, but is accepting to work with us because also they belong to our circles. And then, of course, we have we have we must have a native reader. So, of course, CU Press also has a very good quality control. But before that, already we work with native. So, as as you uh, you could hear, Martin Reddy was there, uh, for example, uh, to control several of the texts. Frank Scher is controlling many texts, and this means uh, very frequently also debates with the translator because. A translation of 11th, 12th century text is a tricky one. There are other translations where, uh, with which uh, our translations were not satisfied with, and uh, they had to go into debates. I can, for example, mention uh, the example uh, of the legends of St. Adalbert. A lot of debates are there in connection. Who was the author? That cannot be known precisely. There are uh, conflicting uh, and debating opinion on that. And we had to uh, decide to provide, on the one hand, an appropriate representation of the different opinions and give our opinion. And then uh, also, for example, a translator in this situation has to, cont- has to look at the work of other translators. So translators frequently uh, look at whether there is a German or a French or another language translation and uh, have to make their own decision how to translate the problematic points. Because these problematic points sometimes uh, are used as for historical justification of certain claims. Uh, one of the legends of St. Stephen, for example, has a passage which says that the Hungarian ruler has full power over the church uh, the, because the Pope granted them a privilege. But this was already very much debated in the Middle Ages by the papacy. But to give a precise translation of that, that's a responsibility. Yeah, and um, you already mentioned that uh, the new book is coming out soon, like in a month. So we are recording this in March 2023, and this podcast will come out in April, just in time for the launch. So conscious of the time, could you say a few words about this new edition and uh, what's included in it? Well, uh, very briefly, uh, because I already uh, spoke about that. So... Uh, if, if, if we say sanctity of the leaders, so there were three type of leaders which were, which were also 
venerated as saints, or not all the leaders, but some some of them. One is the sanctity of the rulers. And that is a a very important thing because uh, the rulers are normally not saints. But the the rulers want to have, on the other hand, a kind of sacred charisma. So the rulers want to be venerated as gods, but Christianity was uh, refusing that for the Roman emperor. This is why they had to suffer martyrdom. Yet in the Middle Ages, kings were uh, more and more appropriating this title. And not only in Central Europe, but elsewhere. But in Central Europe, in Hungary, it is very much so. So it is St. Stephen. It is the founder of Christian kingdom and also a kind of apostle to convert the Hungarians. But there is also his son, Emmerich, whose legend is in the volume, a youthful prince who was educated like Christian, couldn't succeed his father because he died before. But there was St. Ladislas, who was Atleta Patrie, who was a, a kind of chivalrous knight saint uh, and uh, who was fighting the Cumans and uh, who was a valiant and a very uh, brave fighter. This was also a sacrality uh, which was important. So if uh, somebody could win the battle, he had that type of prestige. So Ladislas was like that. And then another type of leader is, uh, of course, the bishop and the saintly bishop. uh, And we have these saintly bishops already in the first volume of the series. uh, There was Adalbert as a saintly bishop. And here we have also... Uh, Saint Gellert or uh, Gerard, who was a bishop of Saint Stephen and who was one of the organizers of the Hungarian church and who was killed at the pagan uh, uprising after the death of Stephen, but was a model of a saintly bishop. We have Saint Stanislaus, who was a bishop who dared to confront the rulers. And that's also important because there were two types of powers in the Middle Ages, uh, the ecclesiastical and the secular power, and they frequently had conflict. There was a famous bishop in England, Thomas Becket, who was uh, killed by the partisans of uh, King Henry II. And this Becket model was also in Eastern Europe. And Stanislaus was also killed by Boleslaus, a a Polish king, uh, because he criticized him. The bishop criticized the ruler. Then we have the holy abbot. That's the third type. uh, And this Saint Procopius is representing it. And I did not mention that there is one more volume uh, which I forgot to speak about, although that's uh, my very closest special research area. And the saint rulers in the 13th century were succeeded by saintly princesses. And there was one saintly princess in Hungary. There were two, two very famous saintly princesses, Saint Elizabeth of Hungary, the daughter of King Andrew II. But the, she was a European saint, not only she was not living in Hungary, but in Thuringia, and uh, she was becoming saint in uh, Germany. But Saint, uh, the niece of Saint Elizabeth, daughter of King Bela IV, Saint Margaret of Hungary, was living in Hungary, in Buda, on, a, uh, on an island in a Dominican convent. And uh, her uh, sanctity uh, is in- important because in the 13th century, there was a big investigation about sainthood that it, it became a bureaucratic, uh, canonic affair because the popes reserved the right for declaring somebody a saint. And uh, before that, they wanted to have an appropriate judicial examination with papal legates. And there is a canonization process documentation, the acts of the canonization of Margaret, which investigation is actually describing uh, the testimonies of 110 witnesses 
who were speaking about the life of Margaret, about the miracles they attributed to her. And this is such a, a detailed reading of the everyday life of medieval uh, people. There are several hundreds speak, and uh, the, what they tell is described by notaries more or less precisely. And uh, we hear about family tragedies, we hear about captivities, we hear about illnesses, we hear about the life of the nuns. There are 38 nuns uh, who give their testimonies, we hear the life of the city. So this is a fascinating reading and this is also a thick volume of the, in the series. And uh, what, what I could see is already that in international uh, medievalist circles already several scholars were very happy and already exploiting this data for the, giving an image of medieval cloister life or medieval miracles. I mean, that's great to see that you know they are using the text that you've been working on. So, yes, yes. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We are very much looking forward to uh, the new volume and uh, all the relevant links regarding the series and the new publication are in the show notes to this episode. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't want to miss any of our new episodes. Gabor, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And goodbye. Bye-bye.